Welcome to the Into Security Chats podcast, brought to you by Info Security Magazine, the leading industry magazine and website, and presented by me, Info Security Editorial Director, Eleanor Dalloway. This is the Into Security spin-off podcast that allows me to indulge in deeper meaningfuls with the industry's finest minds. decided to launch this new podcast spin-off. I didn't have to think twice about who I wanted my first interviewee to be. She needs no introduction, of course, but I'm going to give her one anyway. Katie Mazuris was one of my profile interviews for the magazine last year, and I've been a rather embarrassing super fan ever since. You might think you know Katie Mazuris. She's the pink-haired bug bounty queen who worked for Microsoft. She did a lot in the Pentagon. She testified in front of Congress at the Uber breach hearing, and she's CEO of Luta Security. And a lucky few of you, especially those that read my article, might know Katie as the woman that opened KiwiCon by descending on a circus hoop with purple tubes of LEDs in her hair, what she called cyber dreads, singing a version of Sia's chandelier, but changing the words naturally to cyberlier. Anyway, it just so happens that this first podcast goes out in March, the month that's home to Zero Discrimination Day, International Women's Week, International Women's Day and National Equal Pay Day. So could there be any more perfect a guest than Katie? So Katie, hi, and thank you. And so much, for, thank you so much for being here. Hi, and thank you for having me. Wow, that was quite the intro. I did not expect my cyber dreads to be in the intro, but that is amazing. So thank you for inviting me. <laughs> You're very welcome. Um, and when we met in San Francisco a year ago, the Equal Pay Foundation um, was just sort of a twinkle in your eye. Um, a year later, um, tell us where you're you're at with that, because this is something you're incredibly passionate about. And um, with National Equal Pay Day coming up, I thought it was a perfect time to talk to you about it. No, oh, thank you for asking. So it's it's called the Pay Equity Now Foundation, and um, you can find it at payequitynowfoundation.org. And the reason and the inspiration for me starting it is not only that you know that I've been a victim of pay inequality throughout my career. But this is generational. This affected my mom, you know, who was a scientist and, you know, never actually got to the point where she was ever paid equitably before she unfortunately passed away from breast cancer almost 10 years ago. And so for me, I think the Pay Equity Now Foundation represents um, me trying to make a better world. But it's also, you know, if you think about the five stages of grief, there's actually, you know, writings on the stage beyond the acceptance stage, which is finding meaning. And I think for me, you know, finding meaning in, you know, my mom's sacrifices to get me educated and get me, you know, whatever opportunities she didn't have and everything and working her entire life being underpaid while she was a pioneer in the fertility industry. She was, you know, she was a a scientist, a biochemist, and she worked in the early days and and continued in her career, um, you know, doing infertility work. And she's, you know, and, and, you know, as an offset of that work, not only did she bring literal children into the world that wouldn't have existed without her, you know, without her um, techniques and without her work, 
But, you know, some of the stem cell lines that are used in research were actually from, you know, they're from uh, embryos that are donated to science, et cetera, as part of, you know, the fertility process. So, you know, while her cancer wasn't, you know, wasn't cured by some of this research, you know, it's my hope that that someday that we will see cures to cancer um, and nobody will have to find meaning in the early death of their parent, you know, because of cancer. But also that, you know, people won't die having never achieved pay equality. And right now um, it's between it's projected between 50 and 205 years for women to achieve pay equality. And that is unacceptable to me. So I started the Pay Equity Now Foundation to try and combat that. And you say 50 to 205. Do you mean 50 to 205 years from now? From now, that's right. And what's incredible is that the 50-year estimate, that's just for white women. And you can imagine how race and intersectionality plays into pay inequity. Um, for black women who hold doctorates, that's the 205-year estimate. And right now, they make somewhere uh, somewhere around 60% less than white males with similar education and experience. And if you think about it over your entire career, that adds up, that adds up in an insane way. And it prevents women, especially women who are heads of household, like my mom was a single mom, you know, it prevents women from not just enjoying a better life in their lifetime, but it prevents them from passing on generational wealth. And it keeps the inequity that is, you know, part of the white supremacy patriarchy of our society, it keeps those systems in place for much longer. And I think it's unacceptable to any rational person that we will not live to see pay equity, even for white women. And I think that's, that's a huge problem. I mean, absolutely. And we're in a in a situation that's completely unacceptable. Have we made any progress since the days, you know, with, with your mum in, in the world of science and fertility where, where she was getting unequal pay? Has there been any progress, even though obviously whatever there could have been hasn't been enough? You know, sadly, um, they've done labor and workforce studies. And, you know, the UK is a great example where, you know, the nationalized healthcare where costs are fixed and salaries should be fixed and predictable and whatnot, um, even in systems like that, where supposedly it should be easier to have pay equity across genders and races, they've unfortunately found that that this is still the case. And you know what's interesting is even in female-dominated professions such as nursing, males in the nursing profession on average still make more than their female counterparts. So I, I hate the notion that, well, if we just get more women in STEM, this will magically just, just change because more women will be in there and, you know, this, this won't be a problem anymore. That's a myth. And, and unfortunately, that myth, I think, is contributing to the, the long wait time that we all have for pay equity. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's shocking whenever I speak to you um, about it, I, I get like a new level of rage that kind of rises within me when I think about it. A lot of people will know about your struggle in the years after you left Microsoft and a legal battle you had with them, a, a court case you had with them in terms of their policies for pay and, and equality. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and where that's at now? Yes. Well, I can talk about it because I decided to drop the case this past summer because, you know, effectively I was attempting a class action 
gender discrimination case because for me, it's always been about change, not about me getting money. If you want a cash settlement from a mega corporation, it's quite simple. You have your lawyer draft up some sort of cash agreement in exchange for a non-disclosure and you know you slide it across the table and they either will agree to it or they negotiate with you and then they give you money and you sign away your voice. So obviously money for me was never part of the necessary equation. But what I decided to do when I dropped my case this summer, it was because we were not certified as a class action case. And the reason for that was pretty obnoxious. And, you know, it, it underlines like the difficulty in actually achieving justice in this area. I mean, it's obviously against the law to underpay women and minorities compared to white men. That is against the law in most countries, including the United States. However, proving that something is class action, meaning, you know, it was disproportionately affecting a certain group, that varies from state to state in the United States because state laws um, are different. And I live in Washington state. And because I live in Washington state, there are no specific laws here, unlike, let's say, for example, California. If I had lived in California and brought the exact same lawsuit with the exact same pay data and promotion data that showed unequivocally that Microsoft is and was underpaying women and women of color especially for years, and they knew about it and they still do it. And, you know, essentially, if I had brought that same case with that same data in California, California law stipulates that if you have the data and pay inequity is happening, then, you know, and it affects a class of individuals, then you will be certified as a class action. In Washington, there was no such law. At the federal level, it has become increasingly a hostile and conservative judicial environment where it is very difficult to get something classified as, as a class action. So for me, you know, I basically said I offered Microsoft the chance to settle with me as in I would I would adopt a limited non-disclosure as in I would never, you know, I would never, you know, never speak of them again, but I would only say that I attempted this lawsuit and that I started this Pay Equity Now Foundation and my goal in reaching out to them to, to get them to settle with me was to have them sign what I've developed is called the Pay Equity Pledge. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, but they refused to sign it, which should tell you everything about their true intent and their, you know, the fact that they, they really don't care. They know they can get away with this or they think they can. They think they can continue to get away with this. But essentially, you know, I, I dropped the case, didn't sign anything with them because the only thing that was of interest to me the entire time was that they changed their practices, changed their ways and pledged to never allow this to happen again. And they refused. And like you say, that refusal to do that tells you tells you everything. Well, you worked for Microsoft for quite a long time. So presumably during that time, you built up some relationships with other women that worked there. Do they feel or do some of them feel the same way as you do? And have you been in touch with them since? Have you worked together on this? Or is this something you very much led solo? Well, you know, what was interesting was there were settlement talks in the summer with a group of women. Now, what I learned in part of this process, not being a lawyer, is that if the judge in your case does not certify your case as class action, it would be incredibly difficult to get a settlement that included the class approved by that judge. Because, you know, you're essentially asking that judge to say that he was wrong, you know, you know, approve a settlement that includes the class. So, 
you know, once that class action wasn't approved in the in the legal system, it basically gave Microsoft license to tightly limit the group of women that it was willing to settle with. And I know, you know, the attorneys attempted to get Microsoft to settle with the hundreds of women that had come forward um, while the years of my case was were still active. Hundreds of women at Microsoft, current and former employees, came forward with horrific discrimination and even sexual assault stories of the company burying HR complaints. And there were numerous threads that leaked out of Microsoft, email threads talking about the ongoing abuse, the ongoing discrimination. But, you know, Microsoft, having the leverage of the court's opinion on their side, was able to basically winnow it down to the possible group of us to to settle with to like maybe like a dozen or so of us. And not only was that ridiculous and unfair, but the total amount they were willing to offer was was so small. That's when I started telling my lawyers things like, look, if Microsoft thinks so little of us, there's no reason for us to give up our voice in exchange for tiny amounts of money. I don't need this money, you know, that they're offering and whatnot. And the rest of the women, I told my lawyers, I said, tell them that I will personally outbid Microsoft on this. And my lawyers kind of looked at me like, what are you in insane? In order to give you- them a voice, in order to allow them to not be bound by the, by the non-disclosure. That's exactly it. Yeah. That I said that basically I'll offer them the same amount of money as Microsoft. And uh, in exchange, all they have to do is not sign a Mm non-disclosure agreement. And, you know, my lawyers were very confused because lawyers operate in the courts. So they were saying, well, but they may not. They may not continue their individual cases, Katie. Like what, you know, you'd be paying them and you wouldn't be, quote unquote, getting anything out of it. I said, I would be getting the peace of mind that nobody would have to silence themselves in exchange for the pittance that Microsoft was willing to offer for all of the pain and suffering that they caused. And um, so two of the women in that cohort took me up on it and I, I just, you know, I just gave them money. It was just a gift. Um, and that was that was a thing that, that happened. And then I also wanted to create the Pay Equity Now Foundation to carry this mission forward. And, and this was something that you, you gave so much to for so long. And, you know, I know from talking to you about this and meeting you in person, talking about it, how passionate you were about this and, and getting that justice from Microsoft. How do you feel now that it's it's all over? You know, and you've obviously you weren't able to, to progress it and it, it has been dropped, but you have moved on to the, the pay equity now. So how, how do you feel about that journey and where it's taken you? Well, you know, so much of our, so, so many of our journeys where we do something that seems um, counterintuitive, you know, like, like starting a whole pay equity foundation instead of taking money being offered to me by Microsoft and all that stuff all of our journeys, you know, really inform some of these counterintuitive decisions. So, you know, certainly there was a grieving process for me in understanding how much the cards are stacked against us, how much the entire game is played and informed by the patriarchy. I mean, I had some of the best lawyers and some of the worst lawyers, you know, I had a mix of, of these 
of these folks, you know, in the mix. But even the ones who were the best lawyers, they still were operating in an essentially patriarchal system that was designed to get these cases settled quietly, non-disclosure agreements applied, and everybody sort of thinking that, well, you know, if there were something real here, if there were a real class action issue, that justice would somehow have been served in a different way. So they basically constantly, you know, the these corporations benefit from the system where you put all of this energy into a court case and they expect to be able to arm wrestle you exhausted, emotionally drained, looking for some closure. They expect to be able to leverage that into, you know, some paltry settlement with non-disclosure terms that effectively put you in lifelong legal jeopardy where the company that wronged you could choose to victimize you in the court system if you ever say a stray word again. And I think like that's the main thing for me of like what did why did I do this? Well, this isn't fair. And you know, we have to change the the game because the game's rules are set such that we will never win. And I think in doing this with the foundation it's it's enabling you to sort of amplify your own passion your own beliefs but also other voices and and people that perhaps aren't in the position you are where you have a platform and quite rightly you're using that for good that's right well and you know the first disbursement out of the pay equity now foundation is going to create a law center named after my late mother And that law center is going to seek better judicial pathways. It's also going to look for the differences between state and federal laws that are causing unequal rights to be upheld for women and minorities in pay inequity. And I think that one of the good lawyers that I had, you know, told me that, you know, these types of law centers at universities can help shape an entire generation of lawyers. And the work that I hope that will be done through, you know, through through that law center named after my mom will eventually impact our industry. And then beyond that, you know, the Pay Equity Now Foundation itself, you know, I mentioned the pledge. The pledge is really simple. It basically is three tenets. It's three simple tenets. And it's Bias exists, and until we can root out that root cause of bias, we should treat some of its symptoms, such as pay inequality. The second tenet is that we should audit for cases where pay inequality has happened, pay and promotion uh, inequality has happened. And the third tenet is when we find those bugs in the system of pay inequality, we should fix them. And it's a very simple tenet. And you can imagine I was disappointed but not surprised that Microsoft would not take such a simple pledge because it required them to be accountable and stop the pay inequality practices that they have enjoyed for the entire time that they've existed. And I love this idea of a pledge. It's I feel like if a company does take that pledge, what can they do? Can they 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 market the fact that they've taken that pledge and that it's something they are passionate about and put like a badge on their website or something? How can they get that message out to market so that future employees and customers can see that this is something that they believe in and, and are willing to put their money where their mouth is and take that pledge? Exactly. Well, I mean, that is what my hope is, is that folks running companies that are trying to do the right thing, that are trying to be on the right side of history, will you know, will advertise the fact that they are a a workplace that values their employees, does not willingly participate in, you know, 
white supremacist patriarchy outcomes of pay inequality and that they actually do something about it. And further, you know, I'm hoping that folks, especially folks with a lot of privilege, will take it upon themselves to ask employers, do you have a pay equity policy? Do you have a pay equity pledge? Do you do these audits and do you make corrections? Because it's the people with privilege who are in, you know, the best position, kind of like myself, who is privileged enough to have built, you know, a career and some notoriety and and a, and a functioning and profitable business and everything. I have the privilege of not needing Microsoft's money. And I also have the privilege of being able to assert myself in my own company and say, Pay inequality is not allowed at Luta Security, and it's something that we take seriously. And we've uh, we've actually enacted uh, the the policy itself a couple of times, even in our small company history. So I refuse to accept any company that says we're too small to do this, um, and I refuse to accept any large company that says uh, we can you know we would we would cut into our profits and growth somehow. Um, in a negative way if we if we did these audits. If that's the case, then they're basically admitting to themselves and their employees that they've been stealing wages from their employees and using them to fuel the profits of the executives. Right, totally. And um, what an Im- incredible way to be able to honor your late mother. I think it's incredible what you're doing. And um, yeah, I wish you all the luck with it. And I, I look forward to um, to following that and how it goes. Um, and obviously following your career generally. So it would be remiss of me not to ask you about women in the industry as it's International Women's Day on the 8th. But first of all, do you resent being asked about this topic? Do you you know, find it a bit offensive that people talk to you about it? And are you thinking, oh, shut up about gender already, Eleanor, like right now? How do you feel about being asked about it as a woman in the industry? Well, you are allowed to ask me. <laughs> as a woman. No, you, in all seriousness, though, I, I call it the lady tax. You know, um, when interviewers want to, I mean, aside from this, which was a very specific purpose, and I agreed to it and everything, aside from this interview, I typically refuse all requests to talk about diversity, inclusion, what it's like to be a woman in security, because, you know, one, I'm so cynical, I, I'll likely swear the entire time. So, <laughs> you know, unusable audio for most audiences. But I mean, the other reason is, you know, the reason I call it the lady tax is that, you know, if, if let's say an interviewer has, you know, five questions for me and one of them is the lady question, well, that's, that's, you know, 20% of my time wasted when I could be talking about my work, when I could be promoting my business and, and, and getting more traction there. So it's effectively, you know, keeping me and other women who have to be constantly on, you know, on the, uh, the mic about these issues, it just, it cuts into their professional notoriety time. And I think that that's damaging as well. And the other thing that I can't stand usually is people saying, well, what should we do to increase, you know, to get more women interested in STEM or get more women in my org? And I'm like, pay and promote the women that you already have. Number one, like stop, stop asking me about, uh, feeding more young women into the wood chipper of, of this industry um, and everything. And and two, you know, I tell them I'm not a diversity and inclusion consultant. You should pay for that expertise. And uh, here are some, especially some black women who can help you with that, who run businesses to do this. And this is something that we believe in, you know, and even our small company, we've employed diversity and inclusion consultants um, and, and also um, for our hiring practices, we've employed 
employed, um, you know, folks that will help uh, actually show our our job descriptions to diverse audiences so that our pipeline, you know, that we have no, we will accept no excuse for our pipeline being all white guys, you know, so we've, we've actively engaged in that. And that's the thing, you know, you asked, like, do I resent all of these things? I just resent, you know, when people are expecting women to do more unpaid labor, even if that unpaid labor is about diversity and inclusion. I, you know, I, I could not agree with you more. It's something that on the magazine I've really tried to practice. And we have women in security events, but it's not to talk about women in security. It's just to talk about security. And we have, we find industry topics about, you know, technology issues, challenges, anything that's not about diversity. But it's a space where women can network and meet each other. And we know that there's a huge demand for that in the industry. But we try to do it without the lady tax part. And um. I love that phrase, the lady tax, because I feel it too. And, you know, when I get approached and people say, we'd like to put you on a list about being an influential woman in the industry, you think, I just wish I was on a list about influential people in the industry. You know, it's just exactly like I'm just a person in in this industry. I don't I hate the fact that we always have to be labeled as women. We don't have a men in cybersecurity list and stuff. So I love this whole lady tax idea. So I, I totally agree with everything you've just said. Yeah, that is funny. We don't have the the, the men of cybersecurity and aren't they inspiring to all of these other men? You know? <laughs> I know. And I totally agree that the, um, the best way to get more women in the industry is to pay properly and promote properly and celebrate the women that we already have. I, I couldn't agree more with you on that. So um, yeah, agreed. Definitely agreed. Um, Please, can we talk about your KiwiCon keynote? Because for those listeners that have read the interview in InfoSecurity Q3 magazine last year, they'll know the bones of this story. But no written word can do justice to this story, Katie. And after you told me about this, my cheeks hurt. Um, So will you share the story with our listeners about when you did the opening keynote at KiwiCon? I will. I will share this story. So, um... You know, I do I do some things that are that are notably um, counterintuitive for a middle aged woman. Um, you know, my hair color is just one of those things. But this was actually before my hair was a funny color, and um, I had seen a KiwiCon, um, you know, and I had been in the audience, and I thought wow, these folks really get it. They get my sense of humor. They're amazing, you know, and I thought the opening um, keynote where they had a DeLorean on the stage and, you know, the DeLorean opened and there was a big, you know, smoke machine situation and stuff because the KiwiCon prior to the one that I did with the with the cyber dreads on um, was themed like back to the 80s kind of thing. So I thought, wow, these folks are amazing. So I start writing an email and this was this was my downfall. And I didn't have anyone to to stop me like Jen, um, you know, Jennifer Wood, my, my comms director. I had no one to stop me from this idea. So I wrote the organizers an email and I said, hey, just uh, just wondering, you know, I'll, I'll submit to the CFP process, but just a, just an idea. Um, how about if I descended from Ariel Silks and was singing live karaoke, about cyber export controls and then gave a talk about cyber export controls. How, like, what, I mean, would that be a thing that you guys would be interested in? And they were like, good God, yes. So I was like, oh, that was stupid. Of course they said yes. Who would say no to that? 
Well, and not only was it stupid, I don't know how to do anything on aerial silk. So it was like especially like numbskullish of me to to offer this. Of course they said yes. So I go to a circus trainer in in Seattle and I'm like, hello, I am a not particularly in shape middle-aged woman who would like to learn aerial silks just for, you know, just for this purpose, just this one thing that I have to do. And I explain, <laughs> I explain to them what it is and they kind of look at me like, okay, okay. And they, and, and I said one word that made them change the entire thing, which was, I said, yeah. And they have, you know, they have flames and everything. They have got pyrotechnics on the stage and they said, oh, hold up. Okay. No, no silk and pyrotechnics. I said, well, no, I mean that we could have the silks like way back. And then the pyrotechnics were sort of in the front. They said, no, 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 out of shape, middle-aged woman. No, you know? So they recommended the lira, which is the the metal hoop, right? Because it would it would be unlikely to catch fire, um, even if I did. So uh, so we changed tack and I learned some techniques. I learned some stuff on the metal hoop. And um, and meanwhile, the KiwiCon organizers were like, would you like backup dancers? I'm like, well, at this point, I mean, I, how can I say no? Sure. And, so they had backup dancers. They had a choreographer. They video chatted with me. They showed me videos of their choreography. We worked out over video chat what my choreography would be. And part of it, I am not kidding you, included, you know, them starting with the ring spinning, right? I was in position on the ring. Curtain goes up. The ring is spinning while I'm singing, right? And they're dancing. And part of the choreography needed to be because I am not a dancer. I mean, this should be pretty obvious by this story. They had to stop the ring from spinning and like give me a verse like that. I was just sitting on the ring, regaining my faculties to be able to get off the ring and not fall flat on my face. So, <laughs> so all of this was planned. Anyway, we, we do the thing and, uh, you know, I sing this thing live and there's karaoke lyrics up on the, you know, up on the screen and there's pyro and, you know, magically I did not fall off of this metal hoop that I barely was trained to be on. And, um, you know, my cyber dreads were spinning and the LEDs were going and everything. And the lights go down and the song is over and the curtain goes up and there are my slides about export control. And then I give a perfectly reasonable talk about the Wassenaar arrangement. Um, and that was... Yeah, that was the story. Um, oh, and I also did it agreeing, basically because KiwiCon doesn't doesn't videotape any of their talks. So I thought I was safe. Oh no! I mean, everyone with a cell phone made it not safe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is just phenomenal. But the the crazy thing is, you do love to sing, don't you? You you know, when I asked you what you do for fun and what makes you happy outside of tech and work, you said karaoke, right? It's so true. But karaoke for me, it's like a it's like a sacred place, you know. It's it's no cameras are allowed and everything, and you know, and and that's also why like the karaoke rooms that I would that I would organize, especially in D.C., right? It was like how many federal agencies can I get in here, and security researchers, and policy wonks, and lawyers, and reporters, and everything, and everyone felt safe because of the no. It was basically hacker rules. 
no right. photos, no video, and nobody forces anybody else to sing. So yeah, but it's one of those things where it was also a coping mechanism for me because I have panic attack inducing stage fright. And given the fact that I give public speeches all the time, um, karaoke just seemed like a really good, you know, almost like aversion treatment, right? It's like, get up there and belt out Adele and don't even care, you know, what it sounds like and everything. Because then when you're on stage giving a keynote, hey, at least you're not trying to sing Adele, you know? And right. um, what I did with this, what I call the karaoke note that I gave at KiwiCon was I basically, it was like a fear conquering mechanism. So of course, that's why I had to add something else that I didn't know how to do, which was any kind of acrobatics whatsoever. And I mean, you know, this is one of the things I love about you. You are such a contradiction because, you know, when we met, you spoke about how you have anxiety and OCD and you consider yourself autistic and all of these things. And then you go and tell me the story about how you do something. You do this performance that even the most confident, extroverted person would just die at and you are just throwing yourself into these situations and I find those contradictions about your personality just fascinating you know I think honestly it comes from and this is this is like this is some deep stuff um it comes from a, a place where throughout my life, you know, I've suffered a lot of different losses and different traumas. And, you know, as a teenager, I didn't get along with my mom very well. And I was actually homeless for periods of time when I was a teenager. And so for me, I've lost so much in my life and so many things have been rug has just been pulled out from under me that I kind of look at it as, well, if it occurs to you that this is something that, you know, you might want to do, who cares that it's terrifying? You you kind of get one spin on this marble and just do it. And do it especially if it terrifies you because what the hell else are you going to do? And you have something, you know, you 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 really can't lose what the world won't give you anyway, right? And so I think a lot of my daring has to do with the fact that um, I've had nothing so many times and I just, you know... I just take it as as a cue that I should embrace everything if I can. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's amazing. And you, you said something to me a year ago, and it, I think about it all the time. You said, have as much fun as you can because it's later than you think. And I just think that's such an incredible philosophy to live by. And, and perhaps it's that philosophy that <laughs> leaves you on a stage spinning from a hoop with cyber dreads, I mean, whatever cyber dreads are, um, singing, uh, opening a hacker conference. <laughs> You know, I hope to be the first president of the United States that has done such a thing. So, you know, the story is not over yet. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, when I interview people um, that I consider overachievers uh, like you, Katie, firstly, it makes me feel completely underwhelmed thinking about my own career. But secondly, it makes me feel a bit silly asking you the kind of what's next? What do you still want to achieve question? Uh, because I'm at risk of it seeming like I'm not completely wowed by everything you've over already achieved. But I'm going to ask you anyway, um, what would you, what is next for you? And I mean, you've just mentioned um, quite a big ambition there. Um, is, is that what is next? Is it, is it next stop the White House? Well, I hope the current occupant of the White House does well enough that I don't feel compelled to primary him or or any of the Democrats next <laughs> next uh, time. But aside from that, um, 
you know, I think I'm really trying to change the way corporations work. You know, I'm experimenting with what I call late stage capitalism. And the way that I run my company is something that I hope will catch on. So one of the key tenets is no exploitation of the workers. Fancy that, you know, it's not just underpaying them, but it's expecting people to put work first all the time. And frankly, even as the business owner, I do not feel that that is a healthy philosophy and I can't sustain it myself. We have uh, all Fridays is paid time off, including contractors, because I don't believe in second class citizenship of workers. We have two week shutdowns a year of the company, one in July, one in December, and I call it the Luta Siesta Fiesta. And that's also, you know, it's a time for us as human beings to recharge. And then, you know, finally, I don't like tracking things like, you know, sick days or time out to deal with natural or unnatural disasters or anything like that. Because one, it's bureaucracy, but two, it's insinuating that the people that I've hired aren't going to, you know, pull their weight at some point in time. So I have to meticulously bean count their hours. I just think that's offensive. So what I'm hoping for of the real you know, the sea change that I'm hoping to push with this example is that you can run a profitable company with healthy, happy workers and, you know, that this becomes the new model. No such thing as we're going to exploit you because we're a startup. We're going to exploit you because you're we're a mega corporation and you're lucky to work here. No more worker exploit exploitation is my goal in terms of why I'm I'm still running my business. I love it. And uh, what do you think's um, more achievable? That seat in the White House or changing changing corporations for the for the good? <laughs> well, I think it's all achievable. It's just a matter of will. Um, you know, I think that whether I end up in the White House, you know, sometime in the next decade or beyond, you know, I think that if if I feel like that is the most important thing that I can do then I will I will work until it happens or or die trying. And then with the corporation, I think that the workers are the true powerful folks here. This is why corporations and laws have been uh, working overtime to suppress us. And um, and I think that ultimately workers will realize what power they have and corporations will have to accommodate the fact that workers overall, um, you know, if they band together, if they effectively unionize on a meta level, that that is that is powerful and that that will move the needle in terms of human rights and workers rights. We're going to move on to our final sort of quick fire rounds of this podcast where I'm just going to ask you a few random questions um, to get to know you a little bit better. So the first is pick one piece of technology. It can be hardware, software or an app or anything that you couldn't live without and you can't say a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I would have to say... <laughs> The microcontroller in my fridge and freezer, because quite frankly, I've had those things break down and it's it's a pain. So there it there it is. Can't live without it. <laughs> okay, good. And my desert island question. So if you got stranded on a desert island for like a year, you can take only one song, one book, and one luxury item with you. What would you take? Oh, well, the song part is like kind of cheating because I have a soundtrack that is in my head running at all times. So I have I have like the full, you know, the full iTunes library of whatever whatever songs I've heard in my head. So that one, I don't know. I suppose if I wanted to hear one song over and over again. um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That one just doesn't apply to me. So you said one song, one book and one what? 
Luxury item. Luxury item. Ooh. Ooh, I'd have to say moisturizer for the luxury item. Gotta keep the skin preserved. I mean, I'm middle-aged, but I'm I'm like half native Pacific Islander, half Chamorro. And like we have a non-rhyming version of the fact that we don't crack, but you know, I still like to help out mother nature there. So the moisturizer would have to be the thing. And then one book, I don't know. Um, I would probably, I would probably bring a, a lot of paper because I'd want to write a book. That's what I would do within uh, one year on a desert island is I would finally write at least one of the books I'm supposed to write. That's a great answer. And I would do exactly the same. Um, pop culture question of the month, team Kim or team Kanye? Ooh, I got to say Team Kim, um, not that I have been like following along and whatnot, but, you know, it just seems like, you know, no matter what's going on in, in any given relationship, the thing I can almost always bet on is that uh, if it's if it's a heterosexual relationship, that the woman is probably bearing a hell of a lot more um, emotional labor in the whole thing. So for that reason, not knowing them at all, not particularly following them, I'm I'm Team Kim. Love it. And lastly, let's say Into Security Chats podcast is hosting a very exclusive dinner party. You're going to be my plus one, uh, but you get to choose any three dinner guests to come along with you and they can be dead, alive, famous, not famous. Who are you picking? Ooh, if they can be dead, I'm definitely bringing my mom. Um, So that's for sure. And I want to meet your mom. So I'm glad she was uh, your first choice. Right. You know, Um, let's see. So mom and then... And then who are the other two? So what kind of dinner party is this again? Oh, it's a really fun one. We're going to have a lot of wine. We're going to have good food. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, let's see. All right. So it would be my mom. It actually might be my grandma next, her mother. And um, the reason is that, you know, I, 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 I met her, you know, a few times and everything, but she didn't speak a lot of English. And, um, she just had such a fascinating and amazing life. Um, you know, put it this way, any any person who survived World War II and, and all of the atrocities, especially there on the islands, um, probably has some amazing stories to tell. And frankly, she deserves a night out with a lot of nice food and, and um, being catered to. So sorry, this is like all, you know, basically my intergenerational woman reunion dinner, but that's kind of Love it. Feeling. Um, and then the third guest. Oh, okay. The third guest is um is someone I've never met and someone I might never meet. And it is uh he is the subject of one of my favorite poems that I've loved since I was a kid. Um, and it's uh it's it's a William Butler Butler Yeats poem called When You Were Old, if you've heard it. It's like when you are old and full of sleep and nodding I by have. the fire. Take down this book and slowly read and dream of the soft look your eyes had once and of their shadows deep. And how many loved, uh, what is it, loved your beauty with with love both false and true. But there was one man who loved the pilgrim soul in you and loved the sorrows of your changing face. So it's something like that, but it's that guy. And I haven't met him yet, but he's invited. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love the way your mind works. That's um, that's a, that's a wonderful trio. What a party we'd have! Well, thank you so much, um, Katie. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us. Oh, thank you so much. And this this is 
This has been one of my favorite interviews ever, same as the last one that you did with me in person, and I can't wait till we're all vaccinated and I can come over and uh, we can have cocktails and, and you know, uh, you know, go out and find that dude. <laughs> oh, you're too kind. I cannot wait. Yes, I hope to, I hope to see you very soon. Excellent. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Into Security Chats. I've been Eleanor Dalloway, and it has been a pleasure to have you listening in. Join the conversation next month as I get to know my next guest. Music